Well, I am very excited about this morning. I have longed to teach the passage that we're in uh, for probably my whole ministry life. Um, so if you would, please turn your Bibles to Acts 4. And we'll be in Acts 4.32 to Acts 5.12. Acts 4.32 to Acts 5.12. It's a really unfortunate chapter break. Um, you know, the, the biblical authors just wrote these as letters and, and good men tried to come along and add these different chapter breaks. But chapter 5, going from chapter 4, this break they put in here is an unfortunate break because it's right in the middle of the narrative. So just ignore where your Bible says goes from 4 to 5 because it's, it's not a helpful chapter break. But I'm very excited about this passage today because, beloved, in our account of inspired church history today, we are going to see something very, very, very significant. We are going to see how committed God is and how jealous God is about the holiness, the purity, and the unity of His church. Before we begin, I want to start by reading a couple paragraphs from a famous sermon that J.C. Ryle preached in 1858. If you don't know anything about J.C. Ryle, he's a historical hero of mine. I encourage you to read him. Actually, on Saturday mornings, there's a holiness study. One of our small groups is going through his book on holiness. J.C. Ryle, I've probably read more of him than any man in church history. And uh, so grateful for his work. And one particular sermon, he talks about the church being at war. We don't often think about the church being at war. And yet the church is always at war if it's a true church because Satan hates the true church. And so J.C. Ryle just has a couple paragraphs that I think are very appropriate before we head into inspired church history today and see the first real showdown internally take place in the church. So here's what J.C. Ryle says. The history of the true church has always been one of conflict and war. It has been constantly assailed by a deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. The devil hates the true church of Christ with an undying hatred. He is ever stirring up opposition against all its members. He is ever urging the children of the world to do his will and injure and harass the people of God. If he cannot bruise the head, he will bruise the heel. If he cannot rob believers of heaven, he will aggravate them as they travel on the road to get there or to heaven. He goes on later in the sermon and says, Warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has to fight. What are the lives of the saints but records of battles? What were such men as Paul and James and Peter and John and Polycarp and Ignatius and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Latimer and Baxter, but soldiers engaged in constant warfare? I love that. A wartime mindset as we think about the church. Paul tells Timothy the same thing. You remember, right? 2 Timothy 2. What's he say to Timothy? You therefore, my son, what? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, when we think about war, we often think about attacks from without, right? So far, we've seen in Acts, what? We've seen some attacks. In particular, we saw the showdown two weeks ago, right? With the religious leaders, with Peter. What were they trying to do? Get Peter to do what? Stop preaching. Stop speaking. They even arrested him and pulled him in. They tried to make it seem like it was about the miracle, but they, all they wanted to do was to shut his mouth. 
So the early church that we're looking at, the first church planted by God, the Acts 2 church, has only seen in its brief history now, it's only, she's only a few months old. She's only th- seen attacks from without. She's seen Satan try and come from without. But the battlefront and the war shows up today in inspired church history from a battle from within, inside the church. It's the first time the church faces crisis within the congregation. And that is very, very important for us to think about, beloved. Because the true church is always going to be at battle. Battles hostility from without and hostility from within. And so you ask yourself, okay, Luke's writing this. The purpose of the book of Acts is one, we'll see later on, Paul's going to be on trial at the end of the book of Acts. And this letter is written to Theophilus as an account to show that Paul's not a crazy man. That's one purpose of the book. Another purpose of the book of Acts, this this book, is to encourage and instruct the early church, to give them courage, to give them conviction, and to show them how they should be living as New Testament believers. And so what we have here, beloved, is we have an internal threat to the purity and the unity of the church. And when you see what happens in this narrative you will see how committed and how jealous God is about the purity and unity of His church. Do you know that any time someone starts to tamper with worship, all through the history of the nation of Israel, God dealt with it severely, oftentimes with a public event. Why would God bring a public display any time someone started to tamper with how worship should happen? Well, He did that because He wanted His people to realize as object lessons, don't mess with the things that I call pure and holy, or I may come swiftly without you expecting it. You guys remember Leviticus 10? Nadab and Abihu? Aaron's sons. That's a, if you go read, go read Leviticus 10 later this afternoon and see what happens when two of Aaron's sons tamper with worship in their arrogance. What does God do? Immediately consumes them before the people. And it says, Aaron, his mouth was silent. Could you imagine being a dad and watching that happen to your boys right before your eyes? And then Moses says to the people, here's why God did that. Here is why God dealt so severely when people tampered with worship. He says this to Aaron, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. The reason God comes sometimes in miraculous ways and does unique events is to awaken the people of Israel and now in Acts 5, the church, to how serious He is about the purity, the holiness, and the unity of His people. So, what we have today, beloved, is inspired church history, the first conflict, the first battle. Like J.C. Rowell says, we're always at war. But this battle is an internal threat. There's a terrorist in the camp. And what's interesting is if you want to compare this, sometimes scholars will compare Nadab and Abihu with Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to see two people killed today on the pages of Scripture by God. It's a frightening thing. The only difference, you might say, between Leviticus 10 and this is this is actually a miracle. God's done two miracles so far, right? He's done the miracle of what? Bringing fire and lightning from heaven and allowing people to speak in foreign tongues. There's one miracle. It led to mass conversions, 5,000 plus or 3,000 plus. Then he did a second miracle. He healed a lame man who had been 40 years lame. Led to tons, thousands of more conversions. The church is probably 10,000 now. This is his third miracle. 
but it's a miracle of judgment. And it ends with mass conversions. It ends with mass conversions. This account in inspired church history, beloved, is meant to arrest our attention and make us think very carefully about hypocrisy. Make us think very careful about deception and putting on a mask. So, if you're taking notes, I'm not going to give a a, a classic outline, but I'm going to give you point by point so you can follow along with us. I've titled this, God's Jealous Love for a Pure Church. God's Jealous Love for a Pure Church. And Luke begins, if you're taking notes, in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, here it is, a picture of thriving body life. What Luke's trying to do in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, is he wants to give us a picture. He wants to give us a window to see how the church is literally in a utopia. You're going to see this church is flourishing. It's thriving. They're committed to the apostles' doctrine. They're committed to body life. They're committed to sacrifice. They're spending themselves for one another. It feels a bit like GIBC. How much we benefit from the one another's and body life and godly shepherds and leaders and elders and a history and the commitment to holiness and preaching. We all benefit. And that's where this church is at. But anytime God is doing a work like that, Satan is going to come and see what he can do to tear it down. And the greatest way Satan can get into a healthy church is bring a terrorist from within. But notice the scene is set. Chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. A picture of a thriving body. Notice 32 of chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Notice the church is full of believers. One heart, one soul. Same conviction, same heart, same commitment, same doctrine. They love the same things. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were a common property to them. That's not to say this is socialism, as we'll see in a moment. That is just to say, when people had needs, when people were hurting, people at the church that had more resources would make sacrifices to serve them. They would say, you don't have, you don't have food, you don't have shelter, you don't have some type of income to help yourself get around. We will make sacrifices. If I have extra land, I will sell that land to help you, as we'll see in a moment. This wasn't everyone bring everything and then the, the apostles just decide. It was identified by the needs. They would find needs. Notice verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. People would come and say, I have needs. I need food. I need shelter. I need clothing. They would make that need known. And then people in the church would step up and respond. It sounds a lot like our church, right? Someone comes to town. They have a need. People come alongside and see how they can meet it. And remember, this church was full of transplants. Remember Acts 2, Pentecost? You had all those Jews that came into town that got saved. Many of them would have left their homes to move to Jerusalem to be a part of this healthy church. So people made great sacrifices so they could stay. He also had low income in many areas. God was saving lots of people with no resources. So people with means would come around and serve them. Notice verse 33. And with great power. That's the idea of boldness and authority in spite of opposition. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Verse 34. Not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses, that is extra land, extra houses, would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they'd lay them at the apostles' feet. That's a sign that the apostles had authority, that they trusted the leaders. And they'd be distributed. Notice, they wouldn't be distributed to everyone equally. They would be distributed by the need. Beloved, here's the scene, okay? If you're looking at a movie, 
we're looking at a picture, we'd see Luke is saying, look at healthy body life. Look at a flourishing church. Look at a healthy local church. Look at all that God is doing. In fact, people are going to great degree to make great sacrifices. And I love the, the grammar even in 33 and 34. Sometimes churches that are pragmatic and shallow, they'll preach shallow, watered-down messages, and then they'll do campaigns to try and get people to give, trying to manipulate people to get them to give. The apostles did the opposite. They preached bold, passionate, hard-hitting sermons, and it made soft people, and they responded and just wanted to serve because their lives were being transformed. Notice the grammar in 34 and 35. And with great power, with boldness and authority, they were preaching the Word of God, the apostles, and they were giving testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace was being poured upon the body. How do we know that? What's the reason? The people were responding. As the people heard hard-hitting, sound preaching, they looked at the needs and noticed there was not a needy person among them. Hard truth, as we've said, makes soft people. A real church preaches hard truth, and then people whose lives are transformed want to meet needs. They were of one heart, one soul, one conviction. They shared, they loved one another, they served one another. They were committed to one another. Now, that's the, that's like, that's the scene that's set. That's what he wants us to be thinking about. Look at healthy body life, okay? Then he's going to transition now and give two illustrations of people that contributed to the body life. So you had unity there, you had the purity in the church, you had holy people, you had godly leaders, you had strong preaching, you had strong convictions, you had, you, you had a devotion to one another. And so now what Luke is going to do is he's going to say, let me give you two illustrations of how people contributed to that pure church. One illustration is going to be a great illustration. It's going to be of Barnabas. And I could preach a whole sermon on Barnabas, as you'll see in a moment. What a guy. And that, if you're taking notes, the first illustration will be in four, chapter 4, 32 to 34, and it's of Barnabas. As he responds to this healthy church life, he shows a heart of integrity and self-sacrifice. A heart of integrity and self-sacrifice. He is to be modeled. Luke's putting him forth and saying, look at Barnabas. He's the kind of man you want to follow. <clears throat> that's the positive illustration but then there's a second illustration and this is why the chapter broke, break is so inappropriate so unhelpful because chapter 5 verse 1 it starts with a but notice chapter 5 verse 1 but in contrast to Barnabas there was Ananias and Sapphira that's your negative illustration and he's going to show us that they had a heart of hypocrisy and self-love of heart of hypocrisy and self-love. And that's found in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So the scene is set, healthy church life. And then we're going to see a picture of Barnabas and a picture of Ananias and Sapphira. And what a contrast they are. Notice verse 36. Let's look at our first positive illustration. Barnabas, who showed a heart of integrity and self-sacrifice. Notice what he says in verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Wouldn't you want to be called son of encouragement? It's actually a nickname of sorts. Wouldn't you want to be so well known that people would say, you get around that person and that person brings so much truth and they're so edifying, we can even nickname them the one who encourages. 
It's probably also not only a reference to that idea, which is true and profound, but it's also a reference to how much truth he actually spoke. He was one who was always bringing edifying speech from the Word of God. In fact, do you know how key of a figure Barnabas was in your New Testament? Anybody ever done a study of Barnabas in here? Anybody? Anybody looked at Barnabas as a mentor? You should. Barnabas is the man. Barnabas is the only one that we have in the Scripture standing up to the Apostle Paul when he doesn't think he's right. Did you know that? In fact, Acts 9.36, guess who shows up to minister to Saul right after he's saved? Barnabas. Acts 11.26, he recruits Paul to minister in Antioch. Acts 11, 19-24, and 13:1. He's a central figure in the church. Which church? Antioch. Maybe our healthiest church in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 4. He's sent out as a missionary with a willing heart to go back to his hometown of Cyprus and preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 6. He's a minister in Corinth, according to Paul. Acts 15.12, he's at the Jerusalem council, standing up before the people, and it literally says, Paul and Barnabas are standing up, and everybody's silent as they speak. He was a compelling speaker, a compelling preacher, a godly life. And then, Acts 15.37-39, him and Paul have a bit of a showdown. They have a sharp dispute over John Mark. And I've wondered, as I was studying this week, about if Paul ended up thinking Barnabas was right. What happened? Here's what happened. We'll see this later in Acts. But you got Paul and Barnabas going to minister with John Mark. John Mark lacks courage. He abandons them when they needed him for ministry. Then they have another missionary journey. And Barnabas says, Paul, we've got to give the guy a second chance. Let's pick him up and bring him. Paul says, he's not coming. <laughs> Barnabas says, he's got to come. Paul's like, no, he's not coming. They have a sharp dispute and they actually part ways. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes with John Mark to minister and Paul goes elsewhere. The Bible doesn't say either of them sinned. It just says Paul was saying he's going to get in the way of real gospel usefulness. And Barnabas was saying, no, let's give him another chance. But then in Colossians 4.10, Paul commends to the church in Colossae both John Mark and Barnabas. And I just felt myself wondering... Did Paul think that Barnabas was right? That now he's commending him to the church in Colossae and John Mark? Just a thought. So you've got this guy with this incredible missionary career. But do you know how we find him in Acts? He's just a regular old Christian that's just come to Christ, anxious to serve. Look at this. Verse 37. Oh, one more comment about him. The, the, the idea of him coming from a Levite. He comes from a family of the Levites. means he comes from some of the most noble and godly people from Old Testament Israel. Now notice 37. He owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he had his home that he lived in and then he had a second piece of land. He heard there was a need and he went and he sold the land and he got the money and he brought it to the apostles. Now think about this. He's a Levite from the tribe of the Levites. He was probably sitting under Acts 2 or Acts 3 sermons and was radically converted, pierced to the heart because of his sin and repented. And he's a brand new believer and he's making massive sacrifices to serve. You know what that lets us know? Don't ever think that a brand new Christian who Christ has got a hold of their heart can't go to massive levels to serve. He's brand new in the Lord, probably weak saved and selling property that he's owned that either is in his family line or he made in his business, sells it, brings the money, and just wants to give it to serve the church. 
This guy is serious about self-sacrifice. Then notice what it says in 37. He lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, you're going to see this here and with Ananias and Sapphira. They both lay gifts before the apostles' feet. You probably say, what is going on here? Well, it was probably a pretty public event. It would almost be like you could imagine if we have church, our large ministry over there, maybe, and then we have this other room that's full of a bunch of people that are young leaders and young disciples and people uh, involved in the ministry, the apostles would be in there and people would come in and lay before their feet and say, I heard there was needs. I know people in the body are hurting. I saw some people were struggling. I sold an extra plot of land. Here's what God gave me by way of resources. Here's what I want to give. And they would lay it at the feet and the apostles would take that and then distribute it and there was a need. That's not much different than what you do when you give to the offering plate on Sunday. You give to the church and you trust that the leaders will use it wisely. That's basically what was going on. But there would have been an audience, you understand. People would have been looking and saying, man, God, just save that guy. And look at the sacrifice he's willing to go to. Look at him with his integrity. He had this extra plot of land. He sold it. He's brought it. Look at this willingness to serve. And people would have said, what a savior. And they would have celebrated. Look at what God has done to transform that ex-Jew into this self-sacrificing, humble servant. It would have been radical. The church would have rejoiced. Everyone would have appraised. So he's put forth as this great example, introduced to the church as a man of great sacrifice. Doesn't say anything about Barnabas needing accolades, needing affirmation, needing anything. He just wanted to serve. He probably laid his gift down for the apostles and just walked out. I don't need to be recognized. I don't need to be noticed. I just want to meet needs. I'm out. There's your positive illustration. Now by strong contrast to that, There's a second illustration, and it's negative. Notice, Ananias and Sapphira showing a heart of hypocrisy and self-love. And beloved, let me just warn you as we read verses 1 to 11 and look at this negative illustration. This is not some fictional story. This is not some made-up event. This is not fantasy. These are actual events with a timeline of actual people that died and were killed by God before the congregation because of their hypocrisy. Think about that. I mean, no wonder twice Luke's going to say, and fear came upon everyone. Could you imagine in pragmatic churches today, if some large church that doesn't preach the truth, doesn't preach about sin, doesn't uphold what God's about to say to Ananias and Sapphira, came into the pulpit one Sunday and said, okay, everyone that's here today, I can't ensure your safety. People say, what do you mean? Well, I've been studying Acts 5, and there is a God up in heaven who hates hypocrisy, and He hates it when people put on a mask, and He hates lying, and He hates deception. And he hates it to such a degree that in the early church, the first time it showed up, he executed the first two people before the congregation. So if you're here today and you're a liar and you're a hypocrite and you're a deceiver and you have a mask and you're projecting yourself as something you're not, I cannot guarantee your safety. I'm not saying God will do that to you now, but be sure he will swiftly deal with your hypocrisy if you don't repent of it. What would happen in those large pragmatic ministries? I bet movie night wouldn't go so well next week. As we'll see what happens in this story, you'd have some people running away, 
You'd have some people getting saved and you'd have believers fleeing to the Lord to make sure their heart was right. There's three responses that come from the rest of this narrative. We're going to see pagans terrified to show up to church. That's a real church when unbelievers are afraid to attend because it's so serious about holiness. You're going to see believers fleeing to the Lord because they fear Him so much and they want to make sure they're right with Him. And you're going to see unbelievers getting saved because they don't want to run away from a God that says He'll deal that severely with sin so they go make sure they're right with Him. This is not an account you want to take lightly. Notice, verse 1, the early church would have been shook to the core by this. Here's the negative illustration, a heart of hypocrisy and self-love. But by contrast to Barnabas, there was a man named Ananias. And you know what's sad? The word Ananias in the Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. Hananias. He presumed even upon his own name. He was named probably by godly parents, maybe God-fearing Jews. And yet in his hypocrisy, he even presumed upon the title of his own name. So there was this name, this man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira and they sold a piece of property. Just the same scene like Barnabas. The people probably would have been thinking, oh, this is just like Barnabas. This is going to be great. We're going to rejoice. They're going to come up like Barnabas. We're going to see it. These people, Ananias and Sapphira, they have lots of land and property. They may have been wealthy. They sold some extra. All right. But verse 2, Luke gives us background and content that the audience doesn't know. Notice verse 2. They sold a piece of the property, but they kept back some of, he kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge. This was premeditated. They talked about this. They strategized about this. They thought about what they were going to do. They made a plan. How can we deceive and manipulate to project ourselves as something we're not? To gain the approval of man. As you'll see in a moment. His wife knew. And look what it says. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Just like every other supposed godly person that walked up, they laid the gift down right there at the feet of the apostles. And to Ananias' surprise, he's about to find out that, that Peter, an apostle sent by Christ, God gives him a unique insight to be able to see into the heart of Ananias in this moment. The audience is looking in. If It'd be like, I'm not going to use anybody's name because I don't want anybody to be an illustration of this, but imagine somebody walks up, you're all looking and saying, oh, this is great, a testimony, this is awesome. Ananias is like, yep, I'm going to be looked at as something real godly today. I'm going to be using godliness as a means of game. Maybe I'll get influence in the church. Look at all that I'm giving. Him and his wife planned this, how he was going to do this. I'll show you in a moment, the deception. And he walks up and Luke says, there was hypocrisy in his heart. He didn't know that Peter knew it. The audience didn't know Peter had known it. And then look what happens next. Verse 3. To Ananias' shock. Peter is given insight as an apostle to see into his heart. And what's Peter go after? His motives. Notice verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Now at that moment, everyone there would have thought, what in the world is going on? I thought this was just a regular offering, a regular gift. I thought he was just bringing his sacrifices before them. But Peter 
is exposing before all the people that this was not a real sacrifice. This was a sacrifice full of hypocrisy. Notice it again. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Notice he goes on. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Here's what he's saying. This isn't socialism. You're free to keep the property or not keep the property. You're the one that sold it and brought it forward, and you're the one that's telling us what you're giving. Look at what he says. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. You say, what's the sin here? What's the big issue that happened? What did Ananias do? Well, notice back in verse 4. He says to him, or back in verse 3 even, Why did you keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? And after you sold it, was it not under your control? Here's what he's saying. Ananias came forward and said, basically everybody, here would be an illustration, I sold the land for 20,000 denarii. And everyone would go, great. But in reality, he actually sold the land for 40,000 denarii. But him and his wife had a little strategy. Let's have you go before the church. Maybe she said, honey, you go before the church, present yourself like you're this great person who's willing to make great sacrifices like, like a guy like Barnabas. But in reality, let's keep a bunch of the money for ourselves while still projecting ourselves to the congregation like we made great sacrifice. You understand what they did? It wasn't wrong what they wanted to give, but the issue was they were lying about the level of sacrifice they made. They're saying, hey, we sold this for 40,000, here's 40,000 denarii. But in reality, they sold it for 80,000, we'll say, and they kept 40 for themselves, and then they went before the church and told the church, we actually sold it for 40 when it actually sold for 80. So what's the issue? Instead of just giving with a sacrificial heart and saying, they could have literally came and said, hey, we sold the land, we kept 40 for ourselves, and we gave 40 to you guys. We needed the property. We need it for what other thing, for our other business, but we want to give 40,000 of it. Peter would have said, fine. But they didn't. They came before the church and said, we're the type of people, they wanted to be presented as, we're the type of people that made such a level of sacrifice that everything we got from that we sold and we want everyone to look at us and approve of us and esteem us and lift us up because of a great sacrifice that we've made. But in reality, they didn't make that sacrifice. Do you see what they were doing there? Putting on a mask and projecting themselves as if they were more godly than they actually were to gain the esteem of the congregation, to win the hearts of the people, while all the while deceiving the people. It was deception. It was hypocrisy. They were lying. That's why he says, notice, why have you conceived this deed in your heart? Notice what he says. Verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. Listen to this, beloved. They came before the church with a whole bunch of people watching and lied and said they did something they didn't do. And the reason they did it is they wanted people to esteem them as something they were not. And Peter says, you think you just lied to us? When you treat the church poorly, when you lie to the church, when you lie to the leaders, you're actually having a full-on affront on God Himself. How you treat the church is how you treat God. You understand that in the early church, however people treated the church, Christ or God would say, how that's, that's how you're treating me. Notice Acts 9. Same thing. 
Turn over to Acts 9. What's, what's Saul doing in Acts 9? He's going out to persecute and kill Christians, right? He's going to kill Christians. And look at what Jesus says from heaven to him in verse 4. Acts 9, 4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? What's he say? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus from heaven tells Paul, how you treat Christians, how you treat the church, that's a direct reflection on how you treat me. Back to Acts 5. When Ananias came before the church, beloved, and he lied, when he lied to the elders, when he lied before the congregation, when he wanted to deceive everyone and we wanted everyone in here to think he was something that he was not, put on a mask to project himself as something that he actually wasn't, more godly than he actually was, more sacrificial than he actually was, Peter says, you think you're just lying to us. But actually, you're lying to God Himself and you're offending Him because you're messing with His church. You think it wasn't a big sin? Look at verse 5. And as Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. Beloved, God hates hypocrisy and deception. You know why? Because Ananias, and we'll soon see his wife in a moment, were trying to gain influence. They were trying to be projected as something they're not. They were trying to present themselves as more godly than they were. And God knew that that is a direct threat to the pureness of the body of Christ. If you introduce a liar and a deceiver at a public level and they have the ability to gain influence, it's gangrene to the body. They were probably headed to be the type of people that would have been divisive and false teachers to gain influence and undo what God was doing in this church. Now remember the scene if you back up to chapter 4. This pure church, this godly church, this unified church, it's thriving, they're striving, they're doing great. Barnabas is sacrificing and affirming that. And then Satan introduces one of his minions, we might say, to come in and try and insert deception into the pure bride of Christ. And when he says here, look back at it, that Satan has filled your heart, that doesn't mean Satan took over. That just means that Ananias in his pride and his rebellion and his arrogance and his hypocrisy gave his heart over to be influenced by anything he could that would tear down the church. Whether Ananias knew to the degree or not what he was doing, in his arrogance and his pride and his deception and his hypocrisy, he opened his life up to be used as an instrument of the evil one. And so look at what it says again. Verse 5, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men who were there got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Maybe it was a temporary burial, we're not sure. Could you imagine young men in this room sitting there, guys? You see a guy get exposed for hypocrisy and self-deception for wearing a mask in the church, and the mask is ripped off publicly. And he's showed to be a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator that's trying to deceive people into thinking he's something he's not. God kills him. And then your job is to come and pick him up and take him out. I guarantee that walk out to the barrel, you'd be thinking real carefully about your life. You'd be thinking real carefully about tendency you have to project yourself as something you're not. Tendencies towards deception and lying and hypocrisy. You'd be thinking, God has dealt swiftly with this man. 
And then it just goes on and it's just so painstaking here. Look at verse 7. Great fear, verse and 6, came over all. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. You may say, why does he put the detail of three hours? The humanity of it. The reality, this is an event with a timeline that's actually happening. And you say, why didn't she know for three hours? We don't know. Maybe they had such a good plan to deceive that he would go in first, he would be congratulated, everyone would celebrate what sacrifice he made, he'd pat himself on the shoulder, they'd be thinking about getting inroads to get influence to deceive people, and then she'd walk in and go, oh, I'm here too, yeah, we made that sacrifice, it's no big deal. But in reality, they had kept money for themselves, and they had lied to the church, and she wanted to double down on the deception. Notice verse 7. Three hours later, she comes in, not knowing what had happened to her husband. And Peter asked her. Now you think of the mercy of God. Peter asked her. With Ananias, he just, do, 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 dead. But with Sapphira, he asked her a question. She could have come clean. She could have said, I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. You're right. You asked me. You're right. Have you seen my husband yet here today? We did it. We lied. We deceived. We actually were full of greed and we love money and we wanted it so bad, but we wanted the church to think we were really amazing and we wanted the church to think we were really sacrificial. You're right. We're sinful. Forgive us. She could have done that, but she didn't. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price of the land? Is this the price you and Ananias got for land? Same question. You said you sold it for this much, and so you're being, having super sacrifice, giving all your money. Is that actually true? When in reality, we know they sold it for more. Look at what she says. You want to just like grab her and say, Stop! Don't say it! She says, Yep, yes, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? How could you test the living God who cares for the purity and unity of His church? How could you do that, Sapphira? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. That's the first she heard that her husband was dead. Right there, in that moment. These men right here, They just carried your husband out. That's the first moment she would have known her husband had been killed because of their hypocrisy and their plan. Wow. Then he says this, and they will carry you out also. Man. She committed the same sin as her husband. Lying, hypocrisy, deception, self-promotion, using godliness as a means of gain, perceived godliness. At that moment, verse 10, she fell down and she died. Then the young men came in. Now, here you are, guys. Second round of this. You come back in. You've just buried her husband. Here she comes, finding her dead. It seems that these same young men were out maybe burying her husband, and now they come back in and think, oh my goodness. Now she's been killed too. They find her dead, and they carry her out, and they bury her beside her husband. Now look at verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Of course, great fear seized the church. Of course, people were terrified. God just enacted a miracle, 
a miraculous act of judgment upon hypocrites for deceiving, for lying, for trying to be divisive, for putting on a mask, for projecting themselves as something they weren't, for trying to deceive not only the disciples and the apostles, but to deceive the entire congregation, probably to prop themselves up, to give themselves leadership and influence so they could deceive others. We could say, well, why doesn't God do that today? I mean, you may say, I've had lying, I've had hypocrisy, I've... I've used godliness as a means of gain. I, I've, I've projected myself as something I wasn't so that people would think more of me. Well, if you're a believer, which I don't think they were, this is a warning <laughs> to deal with hypocrisy, to keep short accounts, to repent quickly when you project yourself as something you're not, to think carefully about ways that you go around body life and act like you are different than you are, to put on a mask to cover what's really going on in your heart, to put on spiritual camouflage from who you truly are. J.C. Ryle has a good thought on that. He says this, Ananias and Sapphira thought, or excuse me, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Ananias and Sapphira thought they were fooling the whole church. Can you not see the deceitfulness here, the pretense, the shame, the hypocrisy? Oh, how abominable. But is it not the same true of every one of us? What impression do we try to give to others? Dishonesty runs through society. The lie of the compliment, the lie of appearance. Part of the tragedy of the world is that men and women are deliberately putting on masks. That is the meaning of hypocrisy. People pretend to be what they're not. They think they are clever, and then they are carried off. Beloved, if you're a believer, this is a warning. Deal with your hypocrisy. Keep short accounts. If you're an unbeliever, you should be frightened to walk around a pure, healthy, holy church projecting yourself as something you're not. Because while God may not deal with you immediately, He will deal with you swiftly. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira, if you look at Proverbs 6, turn over there, they committed six of the seven deadly sins. And look at what God says in Proverbs 6, 12-19. He does to people that live as liars and hypocrites and deceivers. Beloved, I just got to tell you, if you're here today and you come to church and you put on a mask and you project yourself as something you're not and you want people to think you're really godly but you're really not and you know your heart's full of hypocrisy and unbelief, repent of that. This is a warning, a loving warning for the early church to deal with that. Maybe you need to come to Christ because in your Phariseeism and your self-righteousness and you're, you're so wanting everyone to approve of you that you act like you're something you're not but in reality, your heart's full of unbelief. God hates hypocrisy. He hates deception and He hates it when people put on masks. In fact, look at Proverbs 6.12. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eye and signals with his feet. That's deception and lying. Who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. This is Ananias and Sapphira. Therefore, his calamity will what? Come suddenly. Instantly, the Hebrew says. It's emphatic. He will be broken. There will be no healing. Beloved, God hates deception. Believers can have it. We can do it. We're going to study it tonight in Proverbs 9. Ways that we can blame shift. Ways that we can deceive. Ways we can put on a mask. But a believer is someone that fears God so much they want to deal with it. Keep their heart right. Repent of it. But don't imagine that you can live as a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator and put on a mask and God's not going to deal with you swiftly at some point. Maybe not in front of the whole church. 
But someday, before the judgment seat. And notice Ananias and Sapphira. They committed six of the seven sins the Lord hates. You know what I think is interesting about how much God hates lying? Two, if not three, you could say of the seven sins the Lord hates are all about lying and deception, beloved. God hates it. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's the one thing they didn't do. Feet that run rapidly to evil. They did that. A false witness who utters lies. He says lies again in his same list. One who spreads strife among the brethren. They were working on that. Beloved, this is not a sin to be trifled with. Let Ananias and Sapphira be a warning to you about hypocrisy. Go back to Acts 5. I've, uh, I've told young men different times here <clears throat> that have come, and all of our leaders have done this, but particularly in a ministry like ours, thankfully I think we're in a great season in our ministry, but there's been times where young men have come and I've been concerned that they were here for the wrong reasons, that they were projecting themselves as godly to gain a godly girl. And, and I've told, probably on a half a dozen accounts, I've told young men, I've said, listen, I'm so glad you're here. I want you under the Word of God. We want you under truth. Scripture is your only hope. You need the revelation of God. I want you in a pure church. And I'll, and I'll treat you like a sheep if you say you want the truth. But if it ever gets to a point where your hypocrisy shows up to a degree that you are projecting yourself as something you're not to get something in the ministry, like a woman or whatever, my relationship with you is going to change very quickly. I'm going to go from treating you as a sheep to protecting you from my sheep. That quick. Because God hates it when deception and hypocrisy comes in and people use that to manipulate people. Beloved, this is the mark of a true church. They treat sin that way. Beloved, I've, I've sat down, I just got to say this, I've sat down with so many people that I've thought were lying and deceiving and covering and acting like Ananias and Sapphira. And I can't tell you how many times I've opened my Bible to Proverbs 28, 13 and said, He who conceals a transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes, they will find compassion. And they still sit and conceal. <laughs> they still cover. Do you know what David's problem was? The murder, the, the association with the murder, that was a major sin. The adultery, that was a major sin. But Psalm 51, he repented that. You know what almost ruined him? His deception and his cover-up. The lies. Beloved, if you have any of these areas in your heart, Proverbs 28, 13, if you conceal, you'll never prosper. But if you confess and you forsake, you find compassion. What a sad thing that liars and deceivers think that they can go on about their business, but this text proves as God will deal with them swiftly. I was sitting with a friend recently and, he, and we, we were ministering to someone and he said to them, he said, listen, if you're going to be a liar, you better have a good memory. <laughs> because liars are always having to cover their tracks. Truth tellers that don't put on masks, they may be full of sin. They may give you too much information. You may have to put a filter on them. But they're working hard to keep a pure and true account. They bless the church. And then look at what happens, the response. This just unfolds now. Back in Acts 5. Verse 11, And great fear came over the whole church and all who heard these things. You have three groups show up, and it just unfolds. Our time's gone, but just watch this fall off the pages. You have three groups. The church, the unbelievers who don't dare to associate with the church, and the unbelievers who repent. 
Notice. Verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all in one accord. What is that saying? The true believers, when they saw this happen, they ran to be with the apostles and they ran to be in worship and they took an account before their heart before God and wanted to make sure they were right before Christ and they worshiped and the fear of God made them run toward God. What's the difference between a false fear and a true fear? The believers, when they feared God, they ran toward Him. But look at the unbelievers that heard about God's holiness, what, how they treated the church. Verse 13. None of the rest, that is those people that heard of this, maybe some that associated with it, that were hanging around the church. They dared not associate. However, they held the people in high esteem. You want to mark a true church? You look at how the leaders treat sin, how they preach about sin, how the church talks about sin, how they talk about holiness. And unbelievers should be uncomfortable in a true church because of how serious they are about holiness. You want to find a false church? Find a place where unbelievers can sit comfortably in the church and no one talks to them about their rebellion and their flesh and their patterns. Look at this again. Unbelievers around a true church dared not associate. Why? They said, that God, even though I don't believe in Him, He deals with sin severely. I don't want to be a part of it. Sometimes people say to us, oh, don't speak too hard. You're going to push people away. Listen, the only way to get them come is to speak hard. Because that's how God draws people when they hear hard truth and it brings them in. And the unbelievers with hard hearts, they say, if that's what God does and He judges sin, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm out of here. Find a church that insulates unbelievers in their sin and unbelievers don't fear being under the Word in their rebellion. It's not a church. And then, look at what happened. Mass conversions. Verse 14, the third group. Unbelievers who feared God and ran toward Him. And all the more believers in the Lord. Look at this. Multitudes of men and women. You know what the word multitudes is used for? Like the baskets of, of loaves and the fish that would come in the nets for the apostles. Multitudes upon multitudes. The church is already at 10,000. This may have been thousands more people were saved by this act of judgment. Hard preaching, serious about holiness, God was feared, and when God was drawing people, they said, that's a God that deals with sin that severely? I'm not running from Him. I need to get as close to Him as possible and make sure I'm right with Him. And God saved thousands more people through this judgment. Thousands. Don't think we're more clever than God, that we can make the church cute and it's going to draw people in. We preach the Word of God and we let it loose. And when people fear, if they're unbelievers, they'll either run away but stay away because they don't, want to feel com they don't feel comfortable there or they'll flee to the living God and say, Save me, I don't want to face you without Christ. That's it. Thousands. And look at this. The participle idea, it was ongoing. Not only then, but the more people heard about what God did, they were constantly being added to their number. And then Luke says, it got so out of control that it filled up the streets. Verse 15. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out of the streets. These were sick that were being saved. And laid them on the cots and the pallets. And when Peter came by, his shadow, that's his, it's hard to know if it's his actual shadow or just his presence, it might fall upon any of them and they'd be healed. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming. Beloved, this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira went global. It went viral. And everywhere it went, people heard, Okay, you're telling me that just for hypocrisy, lying, and deception, God killed two people? And He deals that severely with sin? 
okay, I need to know this God because I don't want to face Him because I'm a hypocrite and I'm full of deception and I'm full of lying and hypocrisy. How do I be made right with Him? And they were coming and they were being saved in droves. Also, the people in the cities, the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people that were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits. You had all kinds of people coming, being cast away. Uh, unclean spirits were being cast away. People were being cleansed. People were being saved. They were being healed. Mass conversions. Beloved, listen. God is jealous for a pure church. If you're here today, you're like me, you have areas of hypocrisy. Areas you want to grow. Areas maybe you project yourself as more spiritual than you are. Don't play games with those. God hates lying and deception. Let Ananias and Sapphira be an example. If you're here today and you're sitting in on our gathering and you're an unbeliever, God just mercifully showed you what will happen to you if you do not repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It may not happen to you before us today, but it will happen to you when you face Him. Today was an act of love from God. Turn from your deception and your lying hypocrisy and Christ will save you. And beloved... Don't ever imagine a church is a true church that plays games with sin. It's not a true church. True churches are places where unbelievers actually leave offended and they don't even want to be a part of it anymore because they're terrified of a holy God. That's a true church. We go to a true church. That's a blessing. Be a part of the unifying element. Let's be a group of Barnabases. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Lord, our time is gone. Thank you for allowing me to keep my voice. That was a, a ministry to me, Lord. Thank you for this text. Lord, we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to put on a mask. We want to deal swiftly with our sins so you don't have to deal with it. Lord, if there's any here today that don't know you, I pray they'd see this as a marvelous, loving call to come. Lord, and for those of us that love you, May we fear hypocrisy in our heart like never before. Let the fear of God come upon us and we run to you to deal with hypocrisy. You don't deal with it all the time like you did in Acts immediately, but you ultimately do, Lord. Let that make us fearful of you and want to honor you. And let us be part of a pure and unifying church where we protect the purity of the church, where we don't downplay sin or redefine repentance, but we uphold your word and treat the word of God how you treat it in our own lives first and then how we minister to others. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.